Chapter Three of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter Three: A Private in the Cavalry. In that fateful April, 1861, our local company, with other companies of infantry and cavalry, went into camp in a half-finished building of the Martha Washington College in the suburbs of Abington. Captain Jones allowed me to remain in Bristol for some time to close up the business I had in hand for clients, and to provide for my family. A good many owed me fees when I left home, and they still owe me. My last appearance in court was in Bluntville, Tennessee, before the Chancellor. My first night in camp I was detailed as one of the camp guards, Sergeant Tom Edmondson, a gallant soldier who was killed in June 1864, gave me the countersign and instructed me as to the duties of a sentinel. For two hours, in a cold wind, I walked my round and was very glad when my relief came and I could go to rest on my pallet of straw. The experience of my first night in camp rather tended to chill my military ardor, and was far more distasteful than picketing near the enemy's lines on the Potomac, which I afterwards did in hot and cold weather, very cheerfully. In fact, I enjoyed it. The danger of being shot by a rifleman in a thicket, if not attractive, at least kept a vedette awake and watching. At this time I was the frailest and most delicate man in the company but camp duty was always irksome to me, and I preferred being on the outposts. During the whole time that I served as a private, nearly a year, I only once missed going on picket three times a week. The single exception was when I was disabled one night by my horse falling over a cow lying in the road. Captain Jones had strict ideas of discipline, which he enforced, but he took good care of his horses, as well as his men. There was a horse inspection every morning and the man whose horse was not well groomed got a scolding mixed with some cursing by Captain Jones. Jones was always very kind to me. He drilled his own company, and also a company of cavalry from Marion, which had come to our camp to get the benefit of his instruction in cavalry tactics. In the Marion company was William E. Peters, professor at Emory and Henry College, who had graduated in the same class in Greek with me at the university. When he and I were students reading Thucydides, we did not expect ever to take part in a greater war than the Peloponnesian. Peters had left his literary work to be a lieutenant of cavalry. He was made a staff officer by General Floyd in his campaign that year in West Virginia. For some reason Peters was not with Floyd when the latter escaped from Fort Donelson in February 1862. Peters was a strict churchman but considered it his duty to fight a duel with a Confederate officer. He became a colonel of cavalry. Peter's regiment was with McCausland when he was sent by General Early in August 1864 to Chambersburg, and his regiment was selected as the one to set fire to the town. Peter's refused to obey the order, for which he is entitled to a monument to his memory. Reprisals in war can only be justified as a deterrent. As the Confederates were holding the place for only a few hours, while the Northern armies were occupying a large part of the South, no doubt, aside from any question of humanity, 
Peters thought it was bad policy to provoke retaliation. General Early ordered a reprisal in kind on account of the houses burned in the Shenandoah Valley a few months before by General Hunter. As General Early made no mention of Peters in his book, I imagine it was because of his refusal to apply the torch to Chambersburg. On his return from this expedition, McCausland was surprised by Averill at Moorfield, and Peters was wounded and captured. He told me that he expected to be put under arrest for disobedience as soon as he got back to Virginia. Hunter was a member of an old Virginia family, but he showed no favor to Virginians. At Bull Run he commanded the leading division that crossed at Sudley and was badly wounded, but there was no sympathy for him in Virginia. A relative of his told me that when Hunter met a lady who was a near relative, he offered to embrace her, but was repelled. She thought that in fighting against Virginia he was committing an unnatural act, and that he had the feelings, described by Hamlet, of one who would kill a king and marry with his brother. On Hunter's staff was his relative, Colonel Struther, who had won literary distinction over the pen-name of Port Crayon. Both men seemed to be animated by the same sentiments toward their kin. Hunter presided over the court that condemned Mrs. Surratt as an accessory to the assassination of President Lincoln. He closed his life by suicide. But to return to our company of cavalry and my first days as a soldier. We were sent, within a few days, to another camping ground, where we had plank sheds for shelter, and where we drilled regularly. Several companies of infantry shared the camp with us. Once I had been detailed for camp guard, and, having been relieved just as the company went out to drill, I saddled my horse and went along. I had no idea that it was a breach of discipline to be doing double duty, until two men with muskets came up and told me that I was under arrest for it. I was too proud to say a word, and as my time had come, I went again to walking my rounds. Once after that, when we were in camp on Bull Run, I was talking at night with the colonel in his tent, and did not hear the bugle sounded for roll-call. So a lieutenant, who happened to be in command, ordered me as a penalty to do duty the rest of the morning as a camp guard. He knew that my absence from roll-call was not willful, but a mistake. I would not make any explanation, but serve my tour of duty. These were the only instances in which I was punished when a private. Our circuit judge, Fulkerson, who had served in the Mexican War, was appointed a colonel by Governor Letcher, and took command of the camp at Abington. But in a few days we were ordered to Richmond. Fulkerson, with the infantry, went by rail, but Jones preferred to march his company all the way. As he had been an officer in the army on the plains, we learned a good deal from him in the two weeks on the road, and it was a good course of discipline for us. I was almost a perfect stranger in the company to which I belonged, and I felt so lonely in camp that I applied to Captain Jones for a transfer to an infantry company from Bristol. He said that I would have to get the approval of the governor, and forwarded my application to him at Richmond. Fortunately, the next day we were ordered away, and I heard nothing more about the transfer. On May 30, in the afternoon, our company, one hundred strong, left Abington to join the army. In spite of a drizzling rain, the whole population was out to say farewell. In fact, a good many old men rode several miles with us. 
We marched ten miles and then disbanded to disperse in squads, under the command of an officer or of a non-commissioned officer, to spend the night at the country homes. I went under Jim King, the orderly sergeant, and spent the night at the home of Major Ab Beatty, who gave us the best of everything, but I was so depressed at parting with my wife and children that I scarcely spoke a word. King had been a cadet at West Point for a short time, and had learned something of tactics. He was afterwards transferred to the 37th Virginia Infantry, and was killed in Jackson's battle at Kernstown. When the roll was called the next morning at the rendezvous at Old Glade Spring Church, I don't think a man was missing. The men were boiling with enthusiasm, and afraid that the war would be over before they got to the firing line. I remember one man who was conspicuous on the march. He rode at the head of the column, and got the bouquets the ladies threw at us. But in our first battle he was conspicuous for his absence, and stayed with the wagons. Our march to the army was an ovation. Nobody dreamed of the possibility of our failure, and the last scene of the great drama at Appomattox. We made easy marches, and by the time we got to Withville all of my depression of spirits had gone, and I was as lively as anybody. It took us two weeks to get to Richmond, where we spent a few days on the fairgrounds. We were then sent to a camp of instruction at Ashland, where we remained a short time or until we, with a cavalry company from Amelia County, were ordered to join Joe Johnston's army in the Shenandoah. I well remember that we were in Ashland when news came to us that Joe Johnston, on June 15, had retreated from Harper's Ferry to Winchester. To begin the war by abandoning such an outpost, when there was no enemy near and no necessity for it, was a shock for which we were not prepared, and it chilled our enthusiasm. I couldn't understand it. That was all. But my instinct told me at the time, what was afterwards confirmed by reason and experience, that a great blunder had been committed. At Withville, on our third day's march to Richmond, we got the papers which informed us that the war had actually begun in a skirmish at Fairfax, where Captain Marr had been killed. We were greatly excited by the news of the affair. Our people had been reading about war and descriptions of battles by historians and poets from the days of Homer down, and were filled with enthusiasm for military glory. They had no experience in the hardships of military service, and knew nothing, had no conception, of the suffering it brings to the homes of those who have left them. In all great wars, women and children are the chief sufferers. Our company joined the 1st Virginia Cavalry commanded by Colonel J. E. B. Stewart, in the Shenandoah Valley. At Richmond, Captain Jones, who stood high with those in authority, had procured Sharp's carbines for us. We considered this a great compliment, as arms were scarce in the Confederacy. We had been furnished with sabres before we left Abington, but the only real use I ever heard of their being put to was to hold a piece of meat over a fire for frying. I dragged one through the first year of the war, but when I became a commander I discarded it. The sabre and lance may have been very good weapons in the days of chivalry, and my suspicion is that the combats of the hero of Cervantes were more realistic, and not such burlesques as they are supposed to be. But certainly the sabre is of no use against gunpowder. Captain Jones also made requisition for uniforms 
but when they arrived there was almost a mutiny. They were a sort of dun color, and came from the penitentiary. The men piled them up in the camp, and all but Fount Beatty and myself refused to wear them. We joined Joe Johnston's army in the Shenandoah Valley at his headquarters in Winchester, and rested there for a day. Then we went on to join Colonel J. E. B. Stewart's regiment at Bunker Hill, a village about twelve miles distant on the pike leading to Martinsburg, where Patterson's army was camped. We were incorporated into the 1st Virginia Cavalry, which Stuart had just organized, now on outpost to watch Patterson. I had never seen Stuart before, and the distance between us was so great that I never expected to rise to even an acquaintance with him. Stuart was a graduate of West Point, and as lieutenant in Colonel Sumner's regiment, the 1st Cavalry, had won distinction and had been wounded in an Indian fight. At the beginning of the war he was just twenty-eight years old. His appearance, which included a reddish beard and a ruddy complexion, indicated a strong physique and great energy. In his work on the outposts, Stuart soon showed that he possessed the qualities of a great leader of cavalry. He never had an equal in such service. He discarded the old maxims, and soon discovered that in the conditions of modern war the chief functions of cavalry are to learn the designs and to watch and report the movements of the enemy. We rested a day in camp, and many of us wrote letters to our homes, describing the hospitable welcome we had met on our long march, and our anxiety to meet the foe who was encamped a few miles away. On the following day, to our great delight, Captain Jones was ordered to take us on a scout towards Martinsburg. My first experience was near there at Snodgrass Spring, where we came upon two soldiers who were out foraging. They ran across the field, but we overtook them. I got a canteen from one, the first I'd ever seen, which I found very useful in the first battle I was in. It was a trophy which I prized highly. We got a good view of Patterson's army, a mile or so away, and returned that evening to our bivouac, all in the highest of spirits. Nearly every man in the company wrote a letter to somebody the next day. End of chapter.